Well, hello and welcome to the inaugural Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. I'm Tim Masso here with YouTube stoical car czar, Alex Dykes. Alex, welcome. Yeah, thanks very much. So I guess we're going to dive right into the car I just got off a plane from going to drive, which is the uh, the new Subaru Solterra. back behind the wheel. What did you think? First of all, give us some context. What is this car and why is it important? This is Subaru's first battery electric vehicle. A lot of customers have long associated Subaru with environmentalism because a lot of environmentalists drive Subarus. But interestingly, Subaru has had actually a, a really slow history with, with rolling out anything that was hybridized or plug-in hybridized, et cetera. So they really only have one hybrid model on sale in the U.S. right now. It happens to be a plug-in hybrid. It's the Crosstrek. Um, and this is their second electrified vehicle on sale in the U.S., and they've gone full battery electric. Uh, but of course, Toyota owns 20% of Subaru. So this is another joint venture between the two companies. Um, but it's a little different than BRZ and Toyota 86. In that tie-up, Toyota basically provided all the cash and Subaru engineered the vehicle. In this one, it's the reverse. So Subaru provided half the cash. Toyota was the design lead. So this very much is a Toyota with a Subaru logo on it and Subaru software and a few Subaru touches here and they're sold to you at a Subaru dealer. And there are obviously pros and cons to this, um, but a lot of folks were disappointed that on paper, it doesn't look great. Uh, 218 horsepower, 220 miles of range was what was promised. And Subaru went through several revisions of their, their spec sheet where they said it was going to go zero to 60 in nine seconds and the world collectively groaned. And then they said, oh no, it's like, it's going to be eight seconds. And then they said, maybe it'll be about seven seconds. And it turns out we actually recorded zero to 60 in six seconds. So it was significantly quicker than the initial rollout of information. Uh, and it's also going to be the only inexpensive EV, and by that I mean under $45,000 likely starting price, it's going to come standard with all-wheel drive and actually have real ground clearance. And in terms of distinguishing it from the Toyota BZ4X, which the name of which I got to say, it makes something like a BMW X3, X-Drive, like 30i, seem almost poetic. But does, how it, does are, it sound better if you say Beyond Zero 4X? A little bit, but then beyond zero, it's exactly zero. Like that's that's the whole idea. It's zero emissions. Fair enough. How are they differentiated? That's a good question. Not by a lot. Um, there is going to be a different battery pack in the BZ4X base model, and there will be a front-wheel drive only BZ4X. Um, aside from that, it looks like it's going to be primarily styling. I haven't driven the BZ4X. I'll be driving that in two weeks, so uh, you can all check that out on the YouTube channel if you want to know really how they're different, um, but it's probably not going to be an enormous difference. Now, is there any particular reason why the volume seller, the BZ4X, which is a big piece for Toyota globally, why is that being launched second? Is there a reason Subaru was given priority up front to get to the market first with this product? Ah, interesting question. So uh, I have been told by both Subaru and Toyota and BMW and Toyota for separate co-product launches that apparently in Japan, uh, there are anti-collusion laws that are somehow involved in marketing and stock and things like that. And so these car companies, even though they co-developed the product, they're very walled off as far as, as much as possible. So the PR departments actually don't know what the other car company is doing, when, what date they've picked for the product launch. Obviously now they know, but back when all the contracts were signed and everything was done, they didn't actually know which one was going to go first. Um, sometimes there's some internal discussion about how that will go. And uh, supposedly with this one, there was no internal discussion. Subaru just happened to pick the date first. Now, in terms of the drive itself, getting behind the wheel, um, there are the sensations, how it accelerates, how it corners, uh, things like brake blending, regen. And then there are other things like whether the vehicle looks like it's going to come anywhere near its efficiency claims. In terms uh, of driving yes. sensations, what is it like to drive, including you know brake blending and regen mm -hmm. settings? It's very much a cross between, a, uh, I would say, a RAV4 hybrid and a regular Subaru in terms of just the general feel out on the road. Um, so a Subaru definitely put their mark on that the way that it handles with the suspension is tuned, the way the steering is tuned to make it feel more in line with the rest of the product lineup. 
but the uh, all the switch gear, everything that you're touching in the cabin has a very Toyota vibe to it, which I don't mind at all. I actually think that the buttons and switches feel better than the average Subaru. Um, as a result of its high ground clearance and a lot of suspension travel, it has a really good ride. So if you've been in a Model Y or a Mach-E uh, or a number of other performance EVs and you've been thinking to yourself, these are just too firm, um, then the Solterra is going to be a great fit because it's simply more livable. If I were to pick one vehicle that I had to drive from, you know, roughly paved suburbia into urban America, which is generally not well paved either, this is going to be a lot more comfortable for that uh, than a Maki -E or a Model Y. And then there's the promise of being able to do those traditional Subaru things to take it to not necessarily an off-road park. It's not a Jeep Wrangler customer, but it's someone that wants to go kayaking or canoeing, and they want to go further down that trail at the uh, at the national park rather than park in the paved parking lot. They want to go closer to the water, closer to the whatever, and that's certainly what this was designed for. I'm just going to throw out some stats for some of our friends in cyberspace. Uh, this vehicle is explicitly advertised with 8.3 inches of ground mm -hmm. clearance, which is genuinely trucky, and a 20-inch fording depth, which I didn't see coming. Did you have a chance to drive it off pavement on terrain? Yes, but mainly on, uh, on some rocky riverbeds and miles, unconscionable numbers of miles of washboard gravel road. Um, Subaru loves to have people, you know, go way, way, way out when they launch a new vehicle just to prove that, you know, we can still do it. Um, and it does have a good feel for that. The one weird part, though, is that this is going to be the only Subaru with any sort of off-roadiness baked into the pie that doesn't have a spare tire. So you can go to the back of Beyond, but if you get a flat back there in Beyond, um, I hope you have prepared because you won't have a spare. Speaking of which, telematics might bail you out. How was the new infotainment system? I know this is Toyota, but it's next generation. Mm -hmm. It is the next generation system. So uh, intriguingly enough, the Subaru gets the new LCD screen and the software basically from the new LX, uh, Lexus LX. Um, so it's not a bad pedigree, I guess you'd say. It does mean that if you have multiple Subarus, as oddly enough, a lot of Subaru owners do tend to have actually multiples of the same car, you won't be able to use one app to control all your vehicles because it is going to use the Toyota app rebranded for Subaru. So there'll be a different app just for the Solterra that you have to download. Uh, but the software is honestly, it feels better polished and looks, I think, more elegant than Subaru's native software and their other vehicles. Toyota has deeper pockets, so they, they spent a lot of money redesigning this generation of the software. There are a few things to know, though. Navigation is always internet connected, so this is another one of those back of beyond things. If you're out there, as we were on this launch drive with no cell reception, you can't actually navigate there because uh, there's no internet connection. So you can't program in a new destination or even get a map display to show you generally where you are. Uh, also, it's subscription-based. So after the trial period ends, and Subaru was not specific on a few things. We don't know what the legroom figures are like, and we don't know how long the subscription to nav will be. But after that ends, you'll have to pay a monthly fee to keep it going. Now, given that this is a pre-launch vehicle and everything's subject to change in the era of over-the-air updates, mm -hmm. I understand that the telematics won't actually locate uh, chargers that are close to the vehicle. That is correct. Yes. And this is a flaw, actually, that is common with a lot of EVs, oddly enough. Um, really just uh, the, the Volvo Polestar conglomerate, um, Ford and Tesla do this well. Some companies do it, and they do it so poorly that it's not worth using. For instance, the Volkswagen ID4, it will guide you to charging stations, but it won't guide you to the free ones, and it won't guide you to the fast ones, and it won't take you on the quickest route from A to B. It will. There is some route from A to B, but it's not going to be the fast one. In terms of charging capacity, it's 150 kilowatt peak? Uh, unfortunately, the Solterra is not. Solterra is going to top out at 100. So it's going to be one of the slowest charging new EVs on the market. And that, I think, is part of Toyota's very conservative design ethos. Um, their statement was that they plan on on engineering and designing this battery pack to have only a 10% battery range loss after an average ownership cycle of 10 years. And that's if they can do that, that's actually pretty good because when we take a look at uh, initial Model 3 deliveries, like Bjorn, who is you know, the, the king of Tesla testing in Norway, he's seen about a 4% loss per year 
in his Model 3. Um, and some users out there have reported data that's either very similar to that or maybe a little bit lower, maybe 2% a year. But any way you slice it, if you do 2% a year for 10 years, that's 20%. Um, and uh, this is going to have, theoretically, a significantly lower loss. The, the opposite side of that is that for uh, Tesla or uh, Toyota is being just very ginger on the battery. So they want to make sure that, you know, the, they're not taking power out too quickly. They're not putting power in too quickly. Um, there's a reasonable amount of the battery walled off for future range protection, basically. So you're not able to use the entire capacity of the battery pack. Um, and although they wouldn't talk specifically about the chemistry of the battery pack, we do know that it's made by CATL. Um, and it could be one of the newer generation of batteries that definitely has a long charge lifetime with associated compromises for charging speed and efficiency. Now, in terms of some of the EV details, uh, things like torque converter creep, one pedal driving, uh, mm -hmm. vehicles rated at 3.1 kilowatt hours um, or miles per kilowatt hour, I should say. Did you find that it was true to the rating? And what about the other driving experience factors? Yeah, it seemed pretty good. Uh, the, you know, sort of the general poll among people that were driving the same route based on their differing driving styles. Some of us ended up around 2.7 miles per kilowatt hour. The car that I ended up uh, swapping midway through the day and, and doing another bit of stand-up uh, filming with ended up averaging four miles per kilowatt hour. So it's in the range of, of acceptability there. It, so much of that's going to depend on your driving style and your climate as well. Um, one benefit is that it does have a heat pump and it's standard in the Solterra. So this is something that's optional in EV6 and optional in Ionic 5, et cetera, not available at all in a number of key competitors like the Volkswagen ID4 in the United States or the Mustang Mach-E. So if you're in a colder climate, it's gonna be much more efficient to heat and the range is going to probably stick closer to the EPA rating in those colder weathers, uh, weather areas than the Ford or the Volkswagen. And in extreme cold situations, they did put an auxiliary heater in it. So if you're worried about some of the performance stories out there that we've heard of Model 3 owners being too cold now that Tesla has moved to just a heat pump, this has a heat pump and a resist development heater both. So it'll help improve in that situation. Now, in terms of things like, uh, and I know you're not a one pedal driving fan. I know you're I'm not. Famously. <laughs> is it possible for those who want it? It is almost possible. They they shied away from calling it one pedal. They call it S pedal for Subaru pedal. And uh, it will take you to gently to a creep, but it will never actually take you to a stop. At, at the point where regen braking can no longer do anything for you, you then must put your foot on the physical brake pedal. That's fair. Now, in terms of pricing, this is going to be very competitive. And of course, we do still have eligibility for the $7,500 federal tax credit. Um, where are we going to be like, where are we in the market segments um, price wise between 30 and 45, 35 and 50? Where do we fall? Yeah. If I pull out my crystal ball uh, and I'm uh, bearing in mind that neither Toyota nor Subaru have actually given any pricing guidance, um, but the, the, the sort of general hints of information that we have swirling around here probably put it between about forty-five dollars and $47,000 starting. If this was going to be the least expensive EV with all-wheel drive in America, they would have said that. That is currently the ID4. And I don't think that they're going to be able to, to get there because of the heat pump and a bunch of the other technologies that are standard on it that are optional on the all-wheel drive ID4. So I suspect it's going to be a little bit more expensive there. But it's still a very good deal because it's going to be considerably less expensive likely than uh, the Mach-E, and it's considerably less expensive than a Tesla Model Y, which has had a, a meteoric rise in, in MSRP lately. And uh, it's also worth noting that one big differentiator at the checkout lane of your local dealer is going to be the fact that it does get that $7,500 tax credit. And everybody is expecting that Totus is going to start sunsetting soon. So likely by June of this year, they will have hit that limit and then it will start to sunset. So you'll get half the tax credit after June, most likely. And it looks like BZ4X may not actually be on dealer lots by June. So it could be that every BZ4X actually has half the tax credit of the Solterra. And I read Solterra that correctly here to say. It's Toyota corporate. It's not brand-based. It is corporate. Correct. It is based on, so the tax credit is based on IRS corporation. 
So because Toyota Lexus Scion, that whole contraption is one IRS registered corporation, they have one pool of tax credits. And this is where things get a little bit tricky. So Hyundai, Kia, and Genesis, those are three separate corporations. So they get 600,000 tax credits between the three of them. Subaru is separate, so it gets its own pool of tax credits, even though it's 20% owned by Toyota. Um, and this is kind of the thing that's hampered General Motors, to be perfectly honest, is that all, everything that is GM, that entire portfolio of, of brands, it's all still just one IRS corporation. So that's why they ran out so soon and why the new upcoming Cadillac EVs aren't going to have a credit at all. Now, it's important to kind of follow up on something you mentioned earlier. I think we're going to focus on EV topics today. We've got a whole bunch of them in the pipeline. Tesla prices. My goodness, what's happened? Yes, uh, I, I, I kind of dug around here. So let's see, they had eight price increases in 2021. And then now this year, they had they had two in the last seven to four, 10, seven to 10 days, something like that right now. So Model 3 now starts at 48,440. The S, their biggest sedan, starts over $100,000, $101,440. Model Y, which is their volume seller, that has had a shocking increase in price, almost 30% over the last year. Now it's $64,440. And the Model X has the longest wait time, apparently, of any Tesla. Uh, you'll get yours if you order it today. You'll get it next January. That's $116,690. Um, What's interesting, and I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see how this affects their sales. Uh, obviously, Tesla's selling everything that they can sell, but once the supply chain gets gets loosened up, um, is what the impact is this going to have? Because those are all tax credit free. Tesla has run out of their tax credits. So I will say that I actually see this as a good thing, both for EV adoption and for Tesla. Um, Tesla says that the reason is the oncoming uh, the, the general increase in commodity costs and their supply chain restrictions, et cetera. And I think that Tesla is less insulated against those changes than other car companies that have bigger, longer term agreements with larger suppliers, et cetera. So that is likely true. But also, I wonder if maybe this is just part of their push towards actually making money. And for Tesla to be around long term, to be making any kind of environmental impact or any kind of impact on the automotive world, they have to continue to exist as a company. And that means making money. Uh, it's the core of every business logically. And this is getting them closer to making money. So on that front, I think it's just fine to be perfectly honest. And it also gives room for other car companies to have more affordable EVs for mainstream customers. Um, the argument that I've always had with, with people seems to be based around like, well, the Model Y is a luxury car, so we should compare it to a you know, BMW X3 or Mercedes-Benz GLC. It's not It's not a RAV4, it's not a CRV. I mean, if I suppose if you could afford both of these vehicles, then, you know, pick which one you like, but that doesn't mean they're the same thing. And this has kind of helped reinforce that, that pricing separation, I think, for a lot of customers. Without a doubt, I think it's also important just to highlight, you know, some context for these uh, Tesla model price hikes. For the most part, we're seeing across the three and the Y price hikes between $2,000 and $3,000 on the models that exist now. Uh, the yep. key thing when making year-to-year -year comparisons is that the entry-level models that existed last year at this time do not exist now. Correct. So. Yep. This time last year, you could get a Model 3 uh, standard range for just over $37,000. Uh, now, if you want to get the most basic Model 3 available, it's $48,000 and change. Same thing's true with the Model Y, which is their volume seller. Right now, the cheapest you can get is something like $63,000 all up. Uh, there was a version a year ago that cost more like forty-two grand. These are huge percentage changes, but they're also a function of um, models being retired and the sunset of the entry level in the Tesla lineup. Um, and some of those, some of those entry level models were sort of the the crowd pleasers. It was like, you know, yes, we promised you an entry level model, so we'll kick one out for a short time, and then it's not going to live very long. If you want to get it now, because it's going to go away. The reading the tea leaves, it does appear that there may be some relief for people that want a Model Y that's less expensive, because there was just EPA approval for a different battery in the Model Y that has uh, lower range and a little bit lower efficiency. So it could be that they are also deploying one of their new Chinese-made battery packs in that model, which could significantly yes. lower costs. Um, Tesla does have a history, though, of EPA approving things that never launch. So uh, we'll find out when it actually goes on sale. 
Fair enough. We also saw some big price hikes. These are a little bit more apples to apples with the Model uh, Model X and also the Model S. Most expensive mm-hmm. Model X actually saw a $10,000 price increase. That's now about $115,000. And we saw a couple of price hikes across the Model S lineup as well. Um, typically about $5,000 versus previous pricing. So these are big moves. I think some of this is probably a response to um, raw material scarcity. I think some of this is also maybe Tesla, like you said, thinking about what the long-term outlook is mm-hmm. in an era when they can't buy, you know, basically sell regulatory credits as part of their profit exactly. model anymore. And this is this is a big concern for them because Stellantis announced uh, last year that they were not going to be buying credits from Tesla anymore. And for the viewers that don't know, Stellantis is the ginormous portfolio that includes um, Renault and uh, Chrysler Group, the Fiat Group, Alfa Romeo, Maserati, et cetera. It's a huge conglomerate. Um, and they were buying hundreds of millions of dollars of credits every quarter in Europe. And that gravy train is now over. Speaking of Stellantis, which is best known for Hellcats, Jeeps, Rams, and Maseratis, they just recently declared that by 2030, 50% of their U.S. production will be EV and close to 100% in Europe will be electric. Toyota, as of 2021, thinks that 85% of its U.S. sales will be gasoline powered in 2030. So is Toyota playing the long game wisely or dangerously late to the EV dance? Yeah, it's that's an interesting question. 2030 is not very far away in automotive design terms. And I have troubles believing Stellantis will ever meet that. It sounds good to put on a postcard. I don't see them doing what's required for that. I now, and I will say uh, on the backhand of that though, uh, which statement was that? Because I know that Sometimes these car companies' word statements funky, and if they said that 50% were electrified by 2030, that I would believe. But electric, not I would not believe that. I, I believe from, they from meant Atlantis. I believe they meant pure EV, but I'm with you. I'll believe it when I see it from mm-hmm. these guys. Um, yeah. And in Europe, it's a lot more believable because in Europe, remember that the the gas guzzling side of Stellantis only exists in North America. And in Europe, Fiat has been a little bit late to the party, but the uh, the French side of this conglomerate is larger than Fiat. So uh, Citroën, Peugeot, et cetera, they've got a ton of EVs already on sale. There's a ton of EV uh, development money going on in France for small EVs that could be you know, parlayed into American small EVs or Italian small EVs. So that makes a lot of sense uh, in Europe. In the US, their push mainly has been uh, deploying their new plug-in hybrid systems across everything. So we are going to be seeing a big push towards plug-in hybrid everythings from them. Now, the thing about Europe, of course, is that if you take plug-ins, uh, BEVs and plug-in hybrids, you've got about 19% of the market. Here in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, right now, you combine those two categories. We've seen great growth, but it's still under 5%. It's 4.8. Oh, yeah. So is EV, I mean, is it realistic for Toyota to say that it's only going to sell 15% of its roughly 2.3 million cars a year as EVs in 2030? Or is that just falling behind? Yeah, to, the Toyota suffers from excessive pragmatism. Um, so in a logical world, I believe that Toyota's philosophy is correct. So Toyota's philosophy goes like this. Batteries are a limited resource in the world in terms of raw materials and most importantly, in terms of cell manufacturing capacity. So even if we could mine more lithium out here and there or find alternative technologies that could use less lithium, less cobalt, less nickel, et cetera, there's, there's still the problem of manufacturing capacity, which is being added at an enormous rate, mind you. So there's tons of new battery factories going up everywhere. Stellantis just announced there's going to be a new one going on in uh, in Ontario, and it's going to be online, I think, in 2025 uh, for building batteries there. So there's a lot of battery production going on there. But when you look at just North American vehicle consumption, or actually even more specific, just, a, just the United States vehicle consumption, if we if we had enough batteries first to hybridize everything, that would have a bigger environmental impact putting every a full hybrid under the hood of every new car in America than selling just 10% of the new cars in America as a full battery electric vehicle. And that would require about the same number of batteries uh, to do that, and actually perhaps even less. 
And then logically, the next step would be to migrate things towards plug-in hybrids. So you could then mitigate emissions even further. And then finally, once that was complete, we would all transition to battery electric vehicles. But I think that the problem is that it's a very American to go cold turkey. You know, no American says, I want to stop, or they, they say, I want to stop smoking. I don't want to slow down my smoking. Now I want to stop drinking when I have a drinking problem. I don't want to slow down my drinking. And so once you've identified that gasoline is a problem, the, the natural instinct is I just, I must, it must die. I have to kill this cold turkey. And, and even though it may be better for the world for us to have this pragmatic march towards a zero emissions future, um, I want my personal future to be zero right now. You're absolutely right. It's like the old Jerry Seinfeld joke. Here in the United States, every medication is maximum strength. So find out what will kill me and then back off just a little bit. That's what I'm Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I can't, I cannot argue with that. I live off grid and part of it was for environmental reasons. So I have dropped my own personal electricity consumption, you know, cold turkey. Um, but that was a little bit less of a, a constrained market in the same way that batteries are. Um, and so, I mean, when you when you look at this and you and you look at Toyota's hybrid sales, Toyota argues that they have done more for environmental impact than Tesla has over the last 10 years. And there is some logic to this. It is, you know, it's difficult logic for some people, but by the fact that that Toyota is moving, you know, 30% of the volume of the most uh, the best-selling vehicle in the US outside of a pickup truck as a hybrid. So RAV4's hybrid sales split is around 30%, Highlander's around 25%, et cetera. Uh, all the new Sequoias are going to be hybrids. It's a very mild hybrid. Um, but that progression towards making more things that are hybrid and selling more of the hybrids definitely has a significant impact. And if resources are truly scarce, then that seems the logical way to go. It's just not sexy. I'm going to play the devil's advocate here because I'm going to retrace the evolution of Toyota's position on, on EVs. So back in 2019, Toyota declared that there was simply no demand for EVs in the United States. In 2020, Accio Toyota was a history of controversial statements, just said that <laughs> EVs are overhyped. And then 2021 brought that 15% by 2030 full EV claim. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. Toyota has said that lithium ion technology wasn't ready for about the past decade, but they had a lithium ion battery on the Japanese market VITS CVT back in 2005. Mm -hmm. So if you truly thought that this was a dangerous technology, you would not have put like a lunchbox sized bomb in the passive hybrid stop start <laughs> system of your VITS. Um, I do think they're just a little bit behind. I don't think they have the technology to come out swinging with a Tesla fighter as their first EV. I don't think they could come out with a Mach-E fighter. If you look at their last decade, it yeah. doesn't look like they took notes. Toyota could if they wanted to, but they just don't want to. That, that's that's the long and short of it. They just they're they're not interested in this. And I would say that they are correct in the overhyped sense and correct in the nobody wants them at the time in a way as well, because we do, I mean, when we look at EV sales this year and last year, have had a pretty good increase in EV sales in, in established markets and, and in the US generally. But before that, there wasn't a huge amount of demand for them. I mean, you look at the sales numbers, one, 2% of the market, this is as popular as a manual transmission. So it's like saying, I don't know if the hype is there for a manual transmission. Manual transmissions are overhyped because we're talking similar numbers. And until very recent, until this year, actually, I believe it is, um, diesels outsold hybrid or outsold uh, full battery electric vehicles. And a lot of the larger numbers for electrified vehicles that are often used smush plug-in hybrids and EVs together for a sales percentage. Um, and that I will say uh, on a side note, though, uh, since I was also just at a Volvo event where they rolled out their second ever EV, um, Volvo's march toward electrification has been very much singing the pragmatist tune, but perhaps doing more about it than Toyota ever has. So last year, about half of the Volvos sold in California, their largest market in the U.S., were plug-in hybrids. And the U.S. Uh, total is around a quarter of their volume. Uh, was a plug-in hybrid. And in Europe, it's around 30-something percent. So they've actually managed to, to not only um, you know, play the pragmatist thing of why they don't have an EV yet, 
so far, but also actually invest in in now four generations of batteries for their plug-in hybrids. So this is now the fourth generation upgrade for the plug-in hybrid system. So they're definitely dedicated to this march towards electrification. Um, and I would say a little bit more aggressively than, than you know, big T. And that's fair. That's fair. I think the main uh, surprise for a lot of folks is just given how much of a head start they had with the Prius originally came out in 1996. Um, people would have thought that by 2022, if companies that never existed before were marketing mainstream electric vehicles, well, then the Toyota would have the motor efficiency of a Lucid, the battery advances of a Tesla, uh, and the charging network, and, and probably the um, the charging speed of something like the new Hyundai architecture, 350 kilowatts and 800 volts. Is there a reason that Toyota matches none of these, despite its I would, money. I would say anybody who thinks that that would have been Toyota's direction does not truly understand how Toyota engineers vehicles. That would be the key. Um, because Toyota truly believes that that hybrids and then later plug-in hybrids, they, they still truly believe that that is the direction. And when you look at it, actually, the Prius Prime is in the top three as far as electric efficiency and the top three as far as gas efficiency goes. So Toyota has proved that they can make very efficient vehicles if they want to. Um, BZ4X and Solterra is this like joint venture compromise in a way. Like it's this platform that can spawn a few things. Crossovers are heavy or, or strong right now. Uh, and it, it does now get... Um, well, I should say Solterra gets over 100 MPGE. It's not up there in the 120s like some people would want it to be. But as far as an electric all-wheel drive vehicle goes, it's not as bad as I thought it would be, especially given the 8.3 inches of ground clearance and the boxy profile. Um, and the front-wheel drive Toyota is going to be better. So it probably will be actually up there in the 115s, et cetera. Um, but it was also engineered to be a mainstream, more pragmatic vehicle. So it doesn't have funky door handles, it has regular door handles, it has regular mirrors, it has um, a boxier shape that people seem to want. A um, lot less care went into the aero because a lot of the aero tricks that EV manufacturers like Ford with the Mach-E and Tesla, et cetera, a lot of those aero tricks are expensive. So to make the vehicle more affordable to build and likely more profitable, that's the direction they went in. I would also say that on the business side of things, Honda and Toyota, especially just very classically Japanese companies, they don't like to build products that are inherently lost leaders. Okay. Um, they will build a niche product like the very first Prius. If anybody remembers, it wasn't hundreds of thousands of Priuses rolling off the shelves right away. The very first and second generation Priuses were very low volume vehicles because they did not make money and they were working on how do we make this thing make money? And their, their approach to electrification has to be very similar for anybody there to sign off on it. Um, and outside of Tesla with the, with the ZEV credits that they're buying, nothing is profitable uh, here yet. So that is a hard sell for a company that dislikes trying to make a volume product that just has no profitability future. And okay, I'll stop playing devil's advocate for a moment. I will acknowledge that this is probably a pretty sound approach. Um, and there's some studies that sort of point to Toyota playing in the right ballpark. Cox Auto did a survey of buyers in July of 2021, and 40% of them claimed to be aware of a Toyota <laughs> EV that did not exist. And 21% claimed that they were seriously considering a purchase. Yep. There was no such vehicle, but a market does appear to exist for any Toyota EV of any. The, the scarier part about that survey was there is a percentage of respondents that didn't know Tesla made electric vehicles, and that's all they make. So they've heard of the brand, and they know it's a car I want, and the whole electric thing, obviously unimportant at this point. <laughs> that's that's getting to be like Jay Leno's man on the street survey. That's hard to believe, but weirdly mm -hmm. wonderful in its way. And, and that's, you know, Tesla has done good things for electrification in that the brand has become desirable as well, because it has drawn in EV intenders that are not really EV intenders, they're Tesla intenders. And this is an interesting thing uh, you know, that that has been created now. It is it is solidly seen by a lot of a lot of shoppers in the sort of 
uh, core middle ground of the luxury segment that are leasing a three series or a five series or an E-Class or an Audi A6 or whatever, that you know what, my next lease around, maybe I'll just get one of those Tesla things. And if you can get them into an electric car, maybe there can be some traction. And even if they don't get a Tesla next time, maybe you've at least gotten them to experience it. Yeah, I've wondered over the long term whether what the long game is for Tesla, because we've seen in so many industries, whether it was Apple with personal computers in the 80s or Ford with its colossal engineering distribution and vertical integration lead in the 19s, um, both of them would ultimately lose their like hegemonic dominant status in the industry to the point that today, for all of its strengths, no one really considers an Apple computer. It's less than 10% of the market. They're all digital devices and online services. Ford was uncatchable in the 19s, but by 1931, it was already no longer the largest purveyor of cars in the US and it would never be again. Osborne was first by far in portable computers. Atari was first in in-home console games, like electronic video games. All of them ultimately lost those markets. Once the mainstream automakers come in, even if their initial efforts are the Chevy Bolts and the BZ4Xs of the world, where does that leave Tesla 10 years down the line? I think when we look at their, I mean, again, crystal balling, but uh, you know, looking at their pricing structure and the way they're designing vehicles, et cetera, I could see Tesla being a higher volume alternative to Porsche. And that would make a lot of sense to be perfectly honest. Business case wise, that is a very good business case for Tesla, um, which is probably why they're not even developing a $25,000 car anymore. There's, you know, the, the group of faithful that wanted the $25,000 car, or the $35,000 car. I honestly do not believe that that is Tesla's future. Um, they've established a cult of brand and, and they've established a, a definite presence in the luxury segment. And they can command those prices that make the product at these volumes profitable. So why would you attempt an unprofitable volume product? Um, and also, I think that luxury customers are more forgiving. So, you know, the, the the classic Tesla quality problems, I honestly believe would be unacceptable if they could really break into uh, core people that just want to drive an appliance that that behaves properly all the time and comes out of the factory perfectly and they don't care too much about it they tend to be oddly a little bit more peculiar about hair under the clear coat and you know door panels falling off and you know getting things wrong from the factory etc um and so it'll it'll be interesting to see how that goes but the luxury car customers there's more of a passionate connection with the vehicle generally. That's part of why people buy Porsches and, and Lamborghinis and Ferraris and, and BMW M products, et cetera. It's not just that it's fast. There's this emotional connection with the brand, with the product, with et cetera. And that is certainly what Tesla has cultivated with, especially their higher end vehicles and the original core customer set. Um, but it is interesting watching this transaction happen because I was recently... We just got a long-term EV6 here at Alex Nottos. So uh, we went and picked it up from the Kia dealer. And then we did some driving around, needed to DC fast charge it, and uh, and went to the e Electrify America station. And there were three Tesla Model Ys trying, struggling to figure out how to charge their vehicle at a station where it could not charge. Aside from that, there were also three plug-in hybrids parked in parking stalls. Why are we parked in a parking stall for fast charging when... A, there are better parking spots, and B, it is clearly for fast charging. At any rate, at least they were plug-in hybrids. And they weren't like rolling coal or something. Um, but the, the Teslas, that intrigued me. So we pulled up to one guy and asked him, and he says, well, I saw it on Google that now I can charge at the station. I said, well, you know, unless you have the one adapter that Tesla's not keen on, and actually a number of other charging companies like uh, – EVgo and a number of other charging providers have actually specifically banned those connectors and their software won't turn them on because they see them as a, a safety risk. Aside from that, if you don't have one of those things, this is not going to happen. If there's the CTEC connector and there's another one, the guy's arguing, he's like, no, I saw it on Google. I Googled, now I can do it. Here, look at this article. And he pulls up an article about, you know, the CCS transition for Tesla in Norway. Like, well, right. you're not in Norway. This is, this is quite a long way away from Norway. See how the plug on the car doesn't look like the plug on the thing? You need the Tesla supercharger station that's right next door. And yeah, it just, it wasn't working. But then simultaneously, I am 
pretty darn sure that there is always a stream of CCS or Chandamo cars trying to supercharge, and that's not going to work either. And it's really interesting because with Tesla volume growing, the, the initial impression, the knee jerk would be that they're going mainstream, that within about a year or so, they're going to surpass like Volkswagen of America in volume if they haven't already. Um, but what you see in the long run is Toyota, which has been largely absent in electrics going mainstream. Mm -hmm. And then Tesla gradually becoming a niche. And there is some evidence to support that. Even mm -hmm. though its volumes are growing, its actual share of the US EV market is shrinking and fairly yeah. significantly. And that's, I mean, that's totally, that seems totally rational and logical to me. I think Tesla could be the highest volume luxury car company in the US if they play their cards right. I think that's an achievable goal for them. Whether or not Tesla then decides to go more down market with a potential Cybertruck or something else at some later date, we don't know. Um, you know, we do know that the next product theoretically should be the Roadster, which is fantastically expensive. Um, but honestly, the Roadster to me makes more sense, more business case sense for Tesla than the Cybertruck because it's highly profitable. I mean, how can a $200,000 Roadster not be a moneymaker? Um, if, if, you know, if significantly lower volume luxury car companies can make their $200,000 cars hugely profitable, it should be a cinch for Tesla. Um, and, you know, we'll see this soon because Ford is bringing on hundreds of thousands of units of capability uh, practically every year between now and 2025. The Mustang Mach-E, 60,000 units last year, they're ramping up to 250,000 units by 2024. So uh, by the end of 2022, there's supposed to be over 150,000 units of production going up to the next tier later. And then we have Lightning coming on in a totally different factory. And we don't have exact specifications for, for that factory just yet and volume because uh, all they've said is their initial volume productions were inadequate. So they're adding more capacity. And there are theoretically other 40 of these coming. Um, so I'm I'm going to be interested to see who ends up first beating Tesla in volume. I at this point in time I would assume it would be Ford, um, but you know GM could come up from the back of the pack. I don't know. Well, I mean, what you know, is they, the they are the leader in electrification. That is true. But the F-150 is also like a brand unto itself. What like seven hundred thousand yeah. units a year? Indeed. Although F F units, uh, I will one asterisk there when Ford says F series trucks they mean everything including medium duty trucks fair enough but we do know that they have allegedly close to a quarter million pre-orders on the f-150 oh, yeah. it's a lot uh we pre-ordered one ourselves uh full disclosure there uh don't know if we'll keep it it's most likely just going to be another long-term vehicle like we generally do we keep it for six months and video it etc uh but we do have one on pre-order it's going to be built uh may 8th and i will actually be driving the lightning uh for the first time i've been driven in it but i've never been able to drive one uh i'll be driving it the first week of may so i think i used to think when i looked at the future of tesla if you asked me back in like 2012 13 14 i would have said they'd be a takeover target for a mainstream automaker that wanted to get into the space that would value their expertise and their technological head start their market cap makes that impossible today that's the problem yes and i think that's exactly why that never happened because they they managed to squeak through the narrow opening that allowed them to keep getting other people's money in in the form of you know new stock releases uh, to stave off bankruptcy at just that time where that was a real possibility because it could have gone either way. The, we could have ended up in this target or they could have been acquired by someone and, and ended up as that thing. Um, and I'm not sure if that would have been good or bad for Tesla, to be perfectly honest. Any, any sort of assimilation into a corporate structure probably would have, have curtailed some of the craziness that goes on at Tesla, for better or for worse. And it's interesting that you see them moving into sort of a luxury performance niche where people are more tolerant, because I've long had this theory that the fastest version of the Model X, which is now the Plaid, is the closest thing existent today to an 80s supercar. Blisteringly fast, profoundly problematic, and mostly owned by people who could forgive all of it. This, that, I mean, that's sort of true. Um, I have a, a, a pair of friends and they, to me, seem like the classic Tesla owners. They started with the Model S, um, then they, they, you know, got very addicted to the power and the, the brand, et cetera, and the ease of purchase and everything else that goes along with it, which cannot be overstated. 
uh, to be perfectly honest. And so now they've had one of everything and they've had multiples of everything. They have multiple Model S's, multiple Model X's. Um, the, the multiple Model X's though, that I was, I was surprised by. Uh, and their logic was simply, if I want a three row electric vehicle that is reasonable, or even electrified, if we even toss in plug-in hybrids, uh, you, you've basically got you know, a Chrysler minivan or the Model X, and that's all, all that will give you three rows of seating and some cargo behind and have a plug um, until we get the Rivian in, in any sort of real volume. Um, so I think it's entirely rational that if that's your need case and you really want to go electric and you can afford a you know, $116,000 base price, then hey, sure, why, why not buy another one? Yeah, I think we could probably do a whole episode on Tesla's retail model and the influence that has had and will continue to have. But I think we'll save that for another time. Sort of the denouement to this EV heavy episode might be this notion of whether or not, since we've spoken about EV enthusiasts, and I consider myself one, you are, they can be fun, they can be rewarding to drive. Can they ever be collector cars? Is oh, this that's an interesting question. I just had a, you you emailed me that question the other day, and so I have been going around in the the launch events that I have just been to this last week, trying to quiz every everybody I could find journalists, the automotive manufacturer, PR people, their engineers, etc. Like what could be a classic car, and no one has an ex, a good answer other than perhaps a the first generation. Uh, Tesla Roadster, or maybe a pre-facelift Model S. But even then, they were a little unsure about whether that could be considered a classic. Now, I suspect that this is already happening, and I've got some evidence. This year, 2022, someone paid $1,200 for an EV1 owner's manual on Bring a Trailer, but it gets better. You mentioned the Tesla Roadster. Well, somebody paid $190,000 again this year for a 1,300-mile 2011 Roadster 2.5. And while no one has ever bought a Prius on Bring a Trailer in its entire history, there have been 18 Tesla Roadster auctions. Huh. And Interesting. Yeah, and big money too. They are now routinely bringing six figures. And as a person who once thought that might be kind of a cool speculative collector car, I can tell you three, four years ago, people were selling them for $55,000, $70,000. No one was paying six figures. Yeah, I'm, I would think that that's going to be the, the classic example because it's, of course, the genesis of Tesla. So there is all there's some historical value in there. There's you know it was a good looking car. It was a Lotus, of course. Um, what are Lotus values at like now? That kind of makes me wonder how many people are going to be running out there trying to find a Lotus and electrifying it to make it look like a Tesla Roadster. I would think copycats would be the 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 real clue that we've hit something here for a possible collector's car if people are making copycats from the available parts. Tesla flying um, your Lotus Elise. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I could, I mean, why not? Right. <laughs> there is one big reason. There is one big reason. And it's the price of the battery is a spare part from Tesla. Well, you could, you don't have to use Tesla's battery. You could oh, always sorry. go get a, you know, get, get a, a model three battery and motor set up and jam it under there. There, there are some interesting conversion kits, you know, available for all sorts of things. Um, but I would be intrigued to see what this looks like um, in, when is it going to be 25 years old? Was it, you know, Another 10 years-ish, something like that, it'll be in that realm. I think like the first Roadsters were, what, about 2008 or so? Sounds about right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's got a little bit of time to wait and for it to be uh, included in some classics uh, circles. So, like, 20, a lot of a lot of classics publications will tell you that 25 years is is the minimum age for a classic. Now, um, so, we'll see what that, what that ends up being. <laughs> No, that's that's true. Although I have a classic car pl uh, plate on my Corvette downstairs, and that's 20 years. So maybe I'm just playing the game here in Pennsylvania. That's ah, what they say. Loose rules. Yeah, indeed. Well, I tried to get antique, but they actually originally sent me a registration and a title that said my Corvette was built in 1902. So I almost had it in hand, but alas. Wow, a 1902 Corvette, that really would be a find. When a state DMV turns a title request in seven days in the year 2022, something went wrong. <laughs> so classic cars i do think that conversions are going to be a big thing because here 
people buy classic cars for two reasons. One, they think the model has some large enduring significance that'll make it an investment of some kind down the road. The other reason is that they buy something that has nostalgic value. So yes. a 1955 Chevy with a straight six might not have a lot of historic or performance value. It might not be worth a lot of money, but if that's the first car you remember driving to the Jersey shore as a kid, you're gonna wanna buy it when you have the money to pay for nostalgia. So I also found that no fewer than eight Honda Insights have been auctioned on Bring a Trailer. Wow. And while they're not bringing a lot of money, that's eight more than we've ever seen Toyota Prius on that site. Now we're talking aluminum frames, sub 2000 yeah. pound curb weight, hybrid tech, three cylinders, the first hybrid you could buy in the US. I think that's a sign that at least some people are willing to overlook performance and pay for nostalgia. I will say there is an interesting there. It's an interesting circle of people that want an insight because I never liked it. <laughs> um, I was never a huge fan of that mall. Yes, it was very efficient, but you know the Prius was generally better, and it the Prius was the one that survived and and led the way. Um, yeah, I'm. I was always intrigued, and everybody out there that I know that's interested in the the insight, they want the manual. They just want the novelty of this funky hybrid with the manual, um, which I thought was the worst version. To be perfectly honest, you're not wrong. The difference between a Honda Insight and like a 2004, like second U.S. generation Toyota Prius, is like the difference between a smart car and a Toyota Corolla. And you start looking at the relative prices when they're new and you're like, well, you can buy the smart car or you can get a real car for just a few thousand more. And that's kind of the difference between the Insight and the Prius. But I will say this, the manual had an exclusive lean burn mode, and it was the only ever U.S. car EPA rated for over 70 miles a gallon. To some yep. kind of a nerd, and I'm one of them, that has some sort of appeal. Yeah, the uh, the sad part was it was so, so underpowered. I mean, it was, that was my complaint with the manual transmissions. If like, if it if it's going to be this underpowered, I stick the automatic on it. I mean, you know, there's there's there was no joy at all in it, um, and the slightest little incline could could involve three or four shifts just to get where you need to go. Um, it was yeah, it was too much work. Was not a fan. <laughs> You're not wrong. It's not a real car, but it was a beautiful dream. I would love the hyper-efficient Volkswagen diesel thing to have existed. Remember how they were pushing oh. that for a while pre-Dieselgate? The you know, XL1 the, uh, in the US. XL1, would yeah. I, th I would, that, that would be cool. Those are now worth money in Europe. People are now paying real money for those. It originally cost over six figures. It still gets over six figures. Yeah, which means we were probably never going to drive one. We're never going to find one here. It's, it's going to nope. be locked away somewhere. Nope. The one registered in New Hampshire on Bring a Trailer will be a $200,000 car. No one will get near it. Mm -hmm. We'll have to talk about EV conversions in another episode. This has been a lot of fun, guys. We may talk about the future of Volkswagen in America the next time we come around, because for a global auto giant, it has a vanishingly small U.S. presence. Yeah. And to be perfectly honest, I don't understand why. We will explore that in the next episode of the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. Thanks so much. I'm Tim. He's Alex. Be well. Have fun. Take care, everybody.